Hello and welcome to the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Brian Powers from PCC Employment Lawyers. We're still in lockdown. This is podcast number three in lockdown after about 12 weeks. Um, this week we're going to do a bit of a discussion of one of our more recent newsletters that's gotten quite a lot of attention and it's just a bit of an emergency issue. Um, we're going to discuss the issue of vaccination and mandatory, in particular mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations. I'm going to be joined by Courtney West that, that you know recently put together a, a publication, um, a newsletter on our webpage about this. Um, the link to that newsletter is in the a link to that is in the in the podcast info if you, if you want to have a read of that. She's going to join me to discuss that. Um, I'm then going to be joined by the rest of the team to do our, our regular segments of the Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Um, we also watched a movie on the basis of sex um, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We decided to go a little bit highbrow um, this week after Legally Blonde last time. So, Courtney, how are you going? Good. 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 Excellent. All right. Well, this newsletter was quite a bit of work. You, um, 3,000 words or so on the issue of vaccination. <laughs> we still don't have a straight answer to give employers about what they can and can't do. But I think we've gone a long way to talk about some of the legal, the legal issues. So and I thought we might just run through and, and what you found on your research. Um, I, I guess the, the, the critical thing and the impetus for this was the, the Fair Work Ombudsman made a publication recently, published a, a kind of position, it's a little bit equivocal, but really the, the, the key question seems to be about the common law implied term of all employment contracts that an employer can give an employee a lawful and reasonable direction. And really the critical, the, the million dollar question, if you like, is could an employer's direction that an employee receive the COVID-19 vaccine be considered a lawful and reasonable direction. And in other words, I suppose that means can people be terminated for not for not following the direction as well? So what did you find and, and what did you write in the in the newsletter about that? Yeah, so firstly the question of lawful, that was that was probably the most straightforward answer to the whole newsletter. Um it is lawful because it there are no laws that that is in contradiction with. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, fine. subject to them not being discriminatory, of course, which is yeah. something that yeah. you know we will talk about in a minute. But yeah, but aside from that, there's yeah, there's it's lawful. Yeah. So, so what about reasonable? So reasonable, as you can tell, is a lot more complicated. Uh, an employee will need to consider the nature of the employment and sort of all surrounding circumstances, which is very broad. Um, I'm aware. Yeah. But fair work advice. Um, did provide a little bit more guidance, which kind of helped. So they've listed a few factors that are kind of key to making that assessment, such as the nature of the workplace, um, including whether there's a need for workers to be interacting with other members of the public. Yeah, of course. And what controls you already have in place within the workplace. Um, also a key one is the extent of community transmission in the area that that workplace is which obviously can increase or decrease the risk of transmission yeah. amongst employees. Um, the effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccinations at reducing the risk of transmission or serious illness, um, whether there are any work health and safety obligations, which we will probably discuss a little bit later, um, 
in terms of the legislation, the individual circumstances of each employee and whether they have a legitimate reason for not being able to be vaccinated um, and then also just vaccine availability. So really before now, to mandate a vaccine would have been quite quite difficult for yeah. yeah and, and i think especially in circumstances where and i don't know how much this is still the case but people were saying you know at one point that you know when the government said that you shouldn't take astrazeneca unless you are over 60 and then they changed their mind and you know i, I think certainly you know for instance whether you've got available of all uh, availability of all the choices of different vaccine etc which certainly we haven't had um you yeah. know you know obviously that's changing now but, but I, I think that's critical but yeah, I mean, it's still, it's not an easy task for employers, is it? Because it still comes down to this question of reasonable. And it's the same when we were working from home. It's what is reasonably practicable and, and the rest of it. Yeah. And we understand as lawyers that that really imparts an objective assessment of the circumstances. You know, we talked about, you know, the man on the Clapham omnibus or the, the man on the Bondi tram or, or whatever it is. And you yeah. know, what, what's more commonly known as the pub test in, in Australia. But... I, I think it, so much of this has always been down to this this concept of reasonableness, and it's so hard when you when you give someone a list of factors like that. It's kind of hard to say, okay, you know, do what's reasonable, take all of these things into account, and we're, and we're not going to give you any guidance aside from that. The Fair Work Ombudsman also provided additional advice in relation to the reasonableness in terms of classifying the workplace in terms of tiers. And there's Tier 1, which consists of employees who are interacting with individuals who have an increased risk of being infected with COVID, so people that are working in quarantine or border control. Yep. And there's Tier 2, which are employees who are required to have close contact with people who are vulnerable to the impacts of COVID-19. So that covers like aged care, healthcare, yeah, people dis- working on the front line. Disability services um, and stuff as well would be in that category, yeah. Yeah. And then there's Tier 3, which are just workplaces to have employees who are interacting with others in the normal course of their employment, again, very broad. And then tier four, which is a workplace where employees have minimal face-to-face interaction with others. Yeah. So the Fair Work Ombudsman then said, in relation to tier one and tier two, due to the increased risk of employees being infected with COVID or giving it to a vulnerable person, it's more likely that a direction in those workplaces to receive the COVID-19 vaccination will be reasonable. Um, tier three, they said it's still not clear and it will really depend on community transmission. So obviously the greater number of cases in the community, the more likely it is that employees are going to have COVID or catch it and that will lean towards it becoming a reasonable direction. Yeah. And they've been quite limited in that tier four, it won't be reasonable because there isn't that level of, you know, interaction between people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tier four is yeah, pretty much most of your... You know, office people, certainly the work from home. Has there been any case law um, assisting us on this? Has there been any cases yet? Uh, There hasn't been any cases in relation to COVID-19 vaccinations, but earlier this year there was a case regarding the flu vaccination. So it is useful guidance. Um, Basically, a healthcare worker was dismissed after she refused to have the flu vaccination. And she had re- she'd been employed for a number of years and had refused every year. Um, but this year, the employer dismissed her following that and she made an unfair dismissal application to the Fair Work Commission. Yeah. The Fair Work Commission dismissed her claim and they held that the direction to receive the flu vaccination was lawful and reasonable. 
And really the key factor in finding that direction to be reasonable was that the vulnerable clients who they were servicing should have been able to expect the carers who were visiting them in their homes were taking precautions, or every precaution they said, against the flu, and that wearing PPE wasn't sufficient to be protecting these vulnerable clients. Um, Which kind of reiterates their work on Bitsman's advice in relation to tier two. Um, But it, it does, I guess, provide an additional idea of where the commission's leaning in terms of this. Yeah, and look, I mean, I just think the situation over the last 11 or 12 weeks, as we've experienced, has has changed. And and, and that was one of the factors that the FOIA set out is is your risk of transmission. And and really what we're seeing (laughs) with Delta and Sydney now, certainly I've changed my view in the last 11 or 12 weeks about how reasonable a mandate would be just when you've got you know, when you're getting 1,500 cases a day and, and people are dying, um, it makes yeah. a difference as compared to six months ago when we were, you know, safely insulated here in Australia and it was all very theoretical, wasn't it? It's, it's, yeah, a, it's a bit more real now. But one of the things that, look, I've heard as well, one of the forgotten factors in this is is what about our actual work, work health and safety legislation? Like how does that play into um, a decision to mandate, like, is there a sense that we actually have responsibility to do this uh, as employers? So, as we know, under the Work Health and Safety Act, um, employees have an obligation to ensure the health and safety of their workers, so far as is reasonably practicable. Um, yeah. Reasonably however, practicable. Again, we just love that. It's 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 yeah. making life as a lawyer very hard at the moment because the, the first question clients say is what's reasonably practicable which is a fair question <laughs> wish we could tell them easily um <laughs> safe work australia it was actually quite difficult to find as is a common theme a definitive answer for any of this and there wasn't much guidance but safe work australia had quite a bit to say and they've said at this stage those obligations don't extend to mandating the COVID 19 vaccination but employers should be conducting risk assessments of their workplace and considering the individual circumstances. And I think it is important to note that this advice was given a month or two ago now and it hasn't been updated since, I guess, the intention to begin living with COVID has has become more apparent. We're not getting down to zero cases anymore. So it'll be interesting to see if that moves. Yeah, and, um, it, and it's funny that because, I, I like, I think that was, like, back in, in sort of March, April 2020, I, th- I think that was, that seemed to be the understanding that at some stage we were going to have a vaccine and we were going to be living with COVID. But somewhere we shifted and, and, and we got used to this idea of zero. Um, hmm. Obviously, that's that ship has sailed now. So there's, there's also an obligation, as we know, uh, not an obligation, I guess, a right for a worker um, who can cease or refuse to carry out work if there's a serious risk to health and safety due to an immediate hazard. Yep. Um, and again, it's unlikely at this stage that an unvaccinated colleague would be considered, I guess, a hazard. So while there's no obligation on employers under the current work health and safety legislation to mandate, or yet, it's also doesn't go the other way either. So employees can't be refusing to work with unvaccinated um, colleagues under yeah. But it's but it's a it's a valid point. I mean, you know, if, if we imagine the situation, I'm working with you guys, five of us, six of us in the office, 
and you know let's say you were all conscientious objectors and i had an underlying mm-hmm. condition like i'd be entitled to say mm-hmm. no actually i'm not going to go to work i'm going to keep working from home or yeah I, I'm, I'm not going to put myself in that situation i don't think that's such an unreasonable position um to, to to take so in a way whether or not that then creates a right to mandate the vaccine i guess is that's the missing point but certainly i think you know if you were in a workplace that had a significant number of sort of conscientious objectors to the vaccine that 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 could be an interesting a really interesting point because one of the things and this is again back to that reasonable reasonableness factor i think one of the things we're really learning now um both internationally but at, at home is we're starting to understand the impact on the illness that you're still going to get it if you're vaccinated but it, it seems to be evidence seems to be that it's much less bad if you've had the vaccine <laughs> yeah. what about incentivizing because that's the other thing a lot of our clients have asked rather than mandating can, can you make it can you incentivize yes you can so that's that's something we can give a clear answer for as yeah. long as those incentives aren't taking away rights or benefits from employees who are not being vaccinated yeah. then an employer can incentivize yeah. it so something additional fact, yeah yeah so a number of um, employers have already started doing this we've shared a few articles um, on our social media so for example Telstra is offering $200 through an internal rewards program to staff who are getting vaccinated so gift vouchers is one option. Yeah, and look, I, I, I know, like, I know also um, I've been aware of, of people giving additional sick leave as well but because, mm-hmm. you know, there is a, there's a known reaction and, and you can, you know, miss, miss a day's work because of it. And if that's, if that's compensated, I think that's a good idea too. But I guess so to sum up what you're saying is that as long as that incentive is not a disincentive in disguise, <laughs> is yeah. really what it is. So you're, yeah. you're saying, oh, the incentive is you get to earn your salary this week. The <laughs> <laughs> incentive is you keep your job. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay, so um, I, I guess the other thing that's come up a bit is discrimination. So, you know, w- w- what do people need to be aware of in terms of ensuring that a mandatory vaccine policy doesn't actually discriminate against employees? As we know... Um under disability discrimination uh, laws in Australia, it is unlawful for an employer to discriminate against a person on grounds of their disability. And that actually extends to medical conditions and can extend to a medical condition that excludes you from being able to receive the COVID-19 vaccination. Um, also includes things such as pregnancy. Yeah, that's a that's an obvious one. And, and really that's a mm-hmm. case of, you know, employers just making sure that they they find out the reason for the ref- for any refusal prior to taking any kind of adverse action against against the employees in effect yeah so that that's sort of the first thing is if an employer if an employee is refusing it's really key to figure out why and identify whether that is for a protected reason yeah and it's also important for employers to work out if there are reasonable adjustments that can be made to accommodate an employee who cannot receive the vaccination. Yeah. Because obviously, as we know, there are exceptions under uh, discrimination legislation if an employee can't perform the inherent requirements of their role yeah. um, with reasonable adjustments that have already been made yeah. or if those adjustments would impose unjustifiable hardship. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just a matter of really 
figuring out why and identifying what options are available outside of vaccination. Yeah. Final one, and this is the curly one that we've discussed already. What about the, the sort of negligence, duty of care to your customers and clients? Um, you know, will an employer have any chance of being liable to the customers and clients if, if those customers and clients contract COVID-19 from their business or in particular from an unvaccinated worker? And could that ultimately be, be negligent in, in the sort of COVID world? Great question. Again, there's been no cases to date around this and whether yeah, an employer will early. be found yeah. liable. But again, as you raise and we're looking into this, a lot of it comes back down to whether undertaught whether there's that foreseeability of risk. Yeah. Um, and COVID up until now really hasn't been foreseeable. Yeah. But again, looking at that Glover and Ozcare case that we discussed before, the Fair Work Commission said that those clients should expect that the workers entering their home are taking precautions. So I do wonder if moving forward they will start to say, well, it is foreseeable now and people that are attending your premises will expect you to take precautions against yeah. COVID-19. Yeah. And whether that will start to include more than just regular controls and include vaccination. Um, yeah. yeah. We're not sure yet, but it's definitely possible. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, well, last one, and I think this is the burning question, you know, and I, and I sort of hinted at it already. Um, if you do determine it's a lawful and reasonable direction, if, if, if you mandate vaccination policy, what if the employee refuses? So we touched on this before, like you said. Um, first thing is to actually determine the employee's reasons, find yeah. out why, um, yeah. and identify if any of those reasons are for protected reasons. Yeah. Um, if they are protected reasons, you will have to follow what we discussed above. You know, there needs to be a level of accommodation and identifying whether there are adjustments available and really just working with the employee on a case-by-case -case basis. So it's important that employers don't just apply a blanket rule and a blanket disciplinary policy for this. They need to look at the individual circumstances of each employee and then assess. And more than anything, get get legal advice as to how to proceed. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. It's not going to be clear. It's not. It's not. And look, you know, your point about the assessing the individual circumstances case by case. I mean, as as we as we say to our clients, and as we say in a variety of different situations, it's just such a critical critical factor whenever you're dealing with employee disciplinary issues or, or terminations or, or anything like that. Um, every yeah. case is different. Look, that's. Thanks for, for that, for the summary. For, guys, if if you're wanting to read more about that, um, there is a comprehensive summary. There's a link in the in the podcast. So um, have a read of that. And if you've got questions about vaccination policy, um, please feel free to get in touch. Okay, great. Let's bring the others in um, and we'll do the good, the bad, the ugly. Hello, Essie Merivara. Hello, Emily Riera. How are you guys going? Hey, how are you? <laughs> what was good, what was bad, what was ugly in employment law this last fortnight? Who wants to go first? I'll go ahead. Um, I selected as my good the Fair Work Commission decision to include loaded rates in the hospitality award. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Great decision. I think, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I know the union was uh, opposed, but... Uh, I think overall, it's 
going to be much more clear for employers and that'll lead to less kind of um, underpayment claims and, and that kind of a thing. And um, it only applies to people who are level three or over and only full time. And I feel yeah. like that's that's a good standard to set. Yeah, I, I think so. And look, where I thought it was a great idea um, and a welcome idea is that a lot of the underpayment issues in hospitality have come from salaries set salaries just being insufficient to cover all the entitlements under the award now i think a a flat loaded rate at least you're still getting paid for every hour you do and i think that's the critical difference i think and as you know my hospitality background i think one of the difficult things has been people that are setting the salaries in the hospitality industry historically were not the same people that were deciding how many hours each worker would do and, and that's the critical problem and so certainly from a chef perspective if it was your job, if it was your section, you've got to clean it up and you've got to finish. And if it's one o'clock in the morning, it's just tough. You know, and that's always been the culture. Sure. Unfortunately, that's it's just been insufficient. And that's where a lot of these problems have come. But yeah, the, the loaded rates, I agree 100%. Um, it's a positive move. From an administrative point of view, it's just so much easier for, um, for, for the employers. But yeah, no, that's a good I one. I imagine so. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, what was your good? <laughs> So my good is just about uh, the fair, fair recognition granted an extension of time. I think it doesn't happen really often. So just wanted to talk about it. On the dismissal, on a dismissal case? Uh, yeah, so about the delivery driver yeah. who's been dismissed. And he, so he traveled overseas. Um, the company was aware of it, but it was supposed to contact them to let them know when it would get back. And they didn't have his email address, could not contact him, and finally uh, dismiss him, send him an email, but uh, his email address was not working, and they sent him a um, letter via the post, and the, his children. Um, received the letter, so they became aware of his dismissal before their father, and they decided to hide it from him um, right. because he had some um, heart problems. Yeah. So they knew, like, um, yeah, it could be a little bit um, distressing situation for him. Yeah. So they waited for him to get back to Australia, and then he was hotel quarantine. And so it's only after all of that that he became aware of his dismissal. Yeah. And I managed to do his application within five days after becoming aware of his dismissal. Yeah. So yeah, the Federal Commission found that the circumstances were highly unusual. Yeah. And they decided in that case to um, grant the extension and they compare it to, let's um, say it was similar to a representative error case, finding yeah. that it was because of the children who had the care of his affairs, yeah. that um, he, he was not aware of the dismissal. Yeah, yeah, because that's, it's, it's always, the test has always been exceptional circumstances and, and the, the commission has tended to set a very high bar on that yeah um but that does sound like it's pretty exceptional circumstances so 
And getting yeah. the game together in five days, I mean, that's impressive. Well, well, it's funny, 21 days is not a long time. And look, I've, yeah. obviously I've been an employer and I understand, I am an employer still, but, but, but I, I've been an employer for a long time. I understand the need for 21 days. Like if these things linger on for a long time, like it can be quite, you know, you, you really, you've got to get on with it. I think that, you know, yeah. if, if you're going to challenge your dismissal, I, I've always felt that they could lower that bar of exceptional circumstances a little bit. I mean, you hear some, some yeah. funny stories that people try and put on about exceptional circumstances, but, but I think, you know, where, where you've had some difficulty because it only takes, you know, as we know, if a client comes to us for help, for instance, you know, realistically, it might be three or four days before they can get an appointment and it could be three or four days before we can do the work. That's, you know, that's eight days. Um, you know, it's not, it's not easy. I mean, every time I've been involved in one, you think you've got plenty of time and then you run out pretty quick. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? But yeah, no, that, I, I read that as well. I, th I thought that was quite interesting and quite a sad situation. So I'm pleased that They've, they granted yeah, the extension. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's almost like something yeah, fair to do. Yeah. Courtney, your good. So my good is a little less good in employment law and a little more good for everyone. Just Mr. Bale's government announcement and the timeline for getting us out of lockdown. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. We get back in the office, we get to stand up and drink. It's going to be great. Yeah. No, that's a fair call. That's employment related. And look, I've only come today with an ugly and I'll go last and it's nothing to do with employment <laughs> law. So <laughs> bad, who, Essie, bad. My bad. Um, I was actually expecting somebody else to do the respect at work bill as they're good. So I put my bad as the fact that even though it was overall, it was good. I, I like what they've introduced, but um, that they kind of, missed the opportunity to include that positive duty on employers to kind of take steps to make sure that there's no harassment in the workplace. I think I, I put a message on LinkedIn about how I, the respect for work, I was positive. I thought it was a good. I, I think it's a yeah. great, I mean, especially the, the Fair Work Ombudsman's um, new extended kind of powers to hear those um, anti-harassment, yeah. uh, to have the anti-harassment orders, yeah. which is, you know, you see, I think that was my that was my good from a couple of weeks ago in the podcast. I think was it? Yeah, specifically that. Yeah, yeah, and no, and I agree. I think it's good. I think it's um. I I think that you know certainly as an employment lawyer in in my career doing employment law, so many cases are in the forum of termination, post termination employment disputes, and the damage is done, and it's always just about money. Um, I think the more that we can get the Fair Work Commission actively involved in um, actually resolving disputes between, you know, present day employees, I, I think that's really that, that's a really positive function and, and it's better generally for the employment community to have that. And particularly with sexual harassment, particularly early in a sexual harassment situation where you can actually, if, if you could intervene a bit more quickly, it doesn't actually become such a, a traumatic and difficult thing to deal with. So, you know, cause they are, they're, they're, they're terrible situations at work. 
No, of course. And, uh, and the only reason why it's in my bad is that, you know, I think uh, the whole vibe of the inquiry report, not to quote the castle here, but the vibe of the thing <laughs> was that, uh, you know, workplace sexual harassment is not inevitable, it's not acceptable, and it is preventable. And I think, you know, that was kind of missed in the bill. And there's been a bit of, bit of coverage about that. And um, yeah, positive duty wouldn't mean, I don't think, too too onerous of steps on employers. So it would have been nice to see, but yeah. still positive. Yeah. But, but again, playing devil's advocate, I think, you know, the positive duty needs to be on people, not to be assholes. How much do we want? Do we need to make it the also, employer's responsibility? That's the other thing. Yeah, but you know, it's I, I would equate it to work health and safety. There's also probably a positive duty on people to not be stupid and you know injure themselves in ridiculous yeah. ways, and still you have to yeah. take the steps to make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and Victoria has had the Equal Opportunity Act for about ten years, and that includes a positive duty, and that's gone fine. The UK have a similar positive duty, and that's been fine as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, okay. I accept that. You're right. I'm wrong. <laughs> bad. Emily, are we up to you? Yes, I think so. So my bad. So it's more about the behavior of the employee, I think. And I also thought it was a little bit funny. So it's about an employee complains that her um, uh, a pharmacy invited a privacy when the pharmacy showed her employer a CCTV footage proving that she stole cosmetic while wearing her uniform. So I just thought it was not super smart. And <laughs> yeah, like, um, yeah, let's have some guts to then complain to the pharmacy that they invited your privacy <laughs> when they give the CC footage to your employer, uh, which ended up uh, terminating the, the employee, actually. And the Australian Information and Privacy Commissioner uh, rejected the complaint. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's great. I didn't see that. You'd have to send me that. I think that sounds really funny. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We have to Courtney's bad. My bad is that over 60 current and former employees of Udanda Farmers Limited have made a claim seeking over a million dollars in unpaid wages. Wow. So, yeah. So a lot of that came down to the misclassification of those employees under the General Retail Industry Award, um, classifying them as level one employees, um, despite the fact that some of those employees in question may have been store supervisors and definitely yeah. um, were satisfying that higher role. So it just shows, I guess, the importance of understanding that classification. Yep. And you should you should be doing a bit, I mean, you know, I, 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 we see a lot of that in smaller businesses. You know, our level one, yeah, they're junior employee level one and they don't think past it. But when you've got that many, you, you should probably be doing a bit better than that, I think, shouldn't you? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunate. Ugly. Essie. My ugly. Well, this has actually just came out today, but the New South Wales Secretary of CFMEU, which is the <laughs> yeah. head of the CFMEU in New South Wales, and a deputy have been... Huh? I saw this, yeah. Go on. Sorry. Yeah, they've been arrested right. and charged for accepting bribes from a construction company in return for favours and preferential treatment. 
yeah. uh, on, in, in, in building sites. So I just, uh, we don't know much yet, but um, I thought that was pretty shocking. Yeah, they face like 10 years jail and like a million dollars in fines or something, don't they? That's what the, yeah, the article said. Yeah, that's ugly. I think that's ugly. I mean, they've of course denied it, but um, you know, what's been released so far just doesn't look good. No. But yeah, the, well, just the just the allegation is ugly. Just a you know union officials taking bribes from the company is yeah, yeah. It's, not a good, it's not a good look. And it's it's more than one unlawful cash transaction is what they're being accused of. Right. So it's it's not just a one off. It's yeah. problematic. Um, Emily. So my ugly is uh, related to the movie we, we had to watch for today. <laughs> and the movie was so manager. bad, it's actually found its way uh, into your ugly. Sorry? <laughs> You're saying the movie was so bad, it actually has found its way into your <laughs> no, ugly. No, no, I'm not saying that. I think it's related to the topic of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it's a bottom manager uh, with uh, under investigation with his employer and who's claiming that he's uh, discriminating because he's a man. Right. Um, he's under investigation because after an event, uh, he brings back a female colleagues uh, to his hotel room um, while she was intoxicated. Right. And he is claiming that she uh, sexually harassed him. Right. Um, she didn't um, made any complaints, but there is still uh, an investigation about uh, what happened into that event. And so that's the reason why he's claiming that um, if it was a female, um, there would not be any investigation. Uh. They were just, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that because it is like, there's no reason why sexual harassment theoretically can't be a, a, a woman harassing a man. Just years it's worth the theme of, of the data. movie, really. Well, it is, yeah, but it just doesn't seem to happen nearly as often, let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> but, you know, that is very connected to the movie. Connected to the movie. Absolutely. And Courtney's ugly. Courtney's yeah. ugly. Courtney's not Courtney's ugly. ugly. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> that's, that's harassment. Um, so my ugly is it's a case of shared. It's just it's a mess, really. Um, so an employee made an unfair dismissal application after he was dismissed for making comments of a sexual nature to a customer. Um, oh, and ultimately, the fair in the bottle shop. Found, yeah. <laughs> The Fair Work Commission found that his dismissal was unfair because they followed the employer just didn't follow process. So I just thought it was ugly in that it shows poor behaviour and a valid reason for dismissal. If an employer isn't following the right process, they're still going to have a claim. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just a bit of a mess everywhere by yeah. everyone. What was interesting for me about that, and it's something that I think we need to see, we should be seeing more. The dismissal was held to be unfair, but the compensation he was given was, I think, two weeks. And yeah. that was because that's the time it would have taken for them to do it fairly. In those circumstances where there is a valid reason for the dismissal, but but the unfairness arises purely from a procedural unfairness. I think what, you know, what the Commission says sometimes, and to my view, not enough, 
will we'll sometimes say, well, that person should have been terminated anyway, and if they'd been terminated fairly, they would have earned an extra two weeks' wages or 10 days' wages or seven days' wages, etc. That was an interesting case, but that's actually, a, you know, that was a very ugly conduct, wasn't it? But It was, it was ugly. It sounded like yeah. a, yeah, there, there was, yeah, it's an entertaining case to read that one. So my ugly is nothing to do with employment law or Australia. It's just Texas. Oh, yes. Yeah. What yeah. I'm going to say. <laughs> Texas. Texas. So <laughs> the state government has, the state uh, legislature has, has passed a law making abortion past six weeks, which is, I think, the detectable heartbeat threshold, or, you know, yeah. which is a bit controversial yeah. in itself. Um, but what's interesting about it is that they've done it in a way where the government hasn't got a right to sanction or remedy the wrongdoers. They've created a civil right for private citizens to sue people for breaching the law, which means that it's much harder to challenge on constitutional grounds. So it's a way to subvert the the operation of judicial review and in effect subvert the separation of powers. Now, they sought an injunction from the Supreme Court, this is my understanding, to prevent the law from coming into operation. And the, the, the court ruled sort of five to four against the granting of the injunction. So the, the law is in operation now and there'll presumably be challenges, but it's, it's pretty disturbing law. The three things that disturb me, number one, the law is is awful and, and it's really put America back 40, 50 years um, in, in terms of where it was. The second part of it that's, that's really disturbing is that fact that when parliaments try and prevent the separation of powers from existing, you know, and we yeah. saw that a little bit with, with Trump's use of his executive authority. And what's interesting is that Chief Justice Roberts, who, who you would say you know, a few years ago was one of the real conservatives on the, on the, on the SCOTUS. And now he's sort of sitting in the middle, which is a little bit scary in itself. He, he dissented on the grounds and he gave the example as a conservative that do we want governments passing anti-gun laws and trying to subvert judicial constitutional process. Um, and so he was oh, quite, a, he, he was very interesting. And I think yeah. it, it was quite interesting for him to use that specific example because he knew that would resonate with the Texans. Well, with the conservatives <laughs> generally, you know, and, yeah, and from yeah. a legal standpoint. And, you know, it's really so important to keep, you know, the executive judiciary and the parliament each having those, those sort of the independence. It's such an important part of our, uh, you know, of any kind of free society. And I know as lawyers, we probably rate the judiciary part of it a little higher than, than other people might. But I think that's the really ugly part of it. But 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 also ugly number three, and I saw this coming in 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 2016, when Trump came in, is the fact that we knew he was going to have a good chance of stacking the court. You know, and Scalia had just just died, but um, with Kennedy and Bader Ginsburg both being of kind of senior age at that time, you know, Trump only only had four years in, but he had the chance to really stack the court. And he's done that with some ultra Republican 
judges that are very young and that could change the course of American judicial history for the next 25, 30 exactly. years. So yeah, that was my ugly, but I didn't even think about the fact that it tied in with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, that was, was my the first subject thought. I was like, this is so relevant. Of our movie. Great. So on the basis of sex, I saw it, I took my mum to see it when it came out in the movies. And it was a f funny experience because, you know, my mum a, was a, a lawyer of the similar sort of, a, a little bit younger than Bader Ginsburg, but same age and had similar experiences at university and stuff. So we went and it was quite funny because I think the cinema was like half full. I think I was only one of about three men. And, oh, wow. and I was the only person below the age of 65 in the whole movie. So it was... oh. No. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. So watching this is... <laughs> yeah, for those that, that um, listeners that haven't seen the movie, it, it's great if you're interested in law and interested in discrimination. This is probably the first movie we've looked at that's actually about our um, practice area as well. Um, mm. And it really follows the very early life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and then... Um, it's a case that, that she ran successfully on behalf of a man claiming sex discrimination because um, he was disentitled to uh, a carer's pension um, on the grounds of his sex. And, and that successful case actually paved the way for a lot of the very successful cases that Bader Ginsburg ran on sex discrimination um, that led to her, you know, ultimately becoming a a Supreme Court justice. And I thought it was a great story. I really enjoyed it. I really liked it. It was the first time I'd watched it and I didn't really know what to expect at all. But yeah, just general overall review. I thought yeah. it was a really great movie, super interesting. The moment you realized that she was going to have a sex discrimination claim for a man, I was like, ooh, good spin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's similar to what I was just talking about with Justice Roberts sometimes. Like you've got to actually sometimes to, to advance your goals, you've got to preach a bit to the choir. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting from that from that point of view and, you know, relatable to your um, one, Emily, about the... She's okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, um, I liked, I was a big fan. I loved Rogue One. So I'm a fan of Felicity oh, yeah. Jones already. But then for Same. her to be playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg was cool. You didn't, I didn't need to, you know, a law movie. I, I liked that. I loved the scene where she arrives at Harvard and all the, all the dudes that look identical in identical suits <laughs> was kind of. I, I, I mean, generally, I, I do think it's a great movie. I think it's great that they wrote about it and great that they chose that story. I feel like a lot of the time they laid it on quite thick. I yeah. think it's, uh they could have considered the fact that their viewer base is probably you know of an average intelligence and you know this day and age you really don't need to repeat the sort of kind of not every scene has to be so thick in all of the the yeah. gender discrimination yeah and um but like i feel like there, there's a there's an art in the subtlety too and i think these days we should we we know it we recognize it it would be there would be a lot of conversation about the subtle things too um, and I also, seeing as this is the second time that I watched it, I think I, I kind of went back and looked at some of the things that I, I thought were a bit like odd. I wondered like, oh, she actually took her husband's classes and I looked that up and she yeah. didn't. Yeah, yeah. 
and that was I felt unnecessary for them to try and make her into a superwoman. I feel like it's completely enough that she was already raising two children, going through Harvard Law School, uh, you know, a brilliant mind, top of her class. She doesn't need the added the the padded narrative. Yeah. Um, Mm. And, but uh, you know, great that they told the story, and obviously there were some really like you know winner lines in there. You yeah. know those the Ginsburg's kind of sass and sarcasm. Yeah. I, I like that they yeah. included it. No, I think that's a fair criticism, and like it's a bit disappointing sometimes with movies when you think, yeah, as you say, really to be laid on as thick as maybe they did. I think that's that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. On the taking of the husband's classes, though, like one of the things that really struck me, and I'm a lot older than you guys anyway, but the whole idea of, you know, having to go to the lectures, someone having to be there to take the notes, otherwise you just miss the content altogether. It's kind of a little bit foreign to us having gone to uni where, you know, oh, you know, I'll just watch it later on Moodle or I'll download the slides or, you know, th that was kind of quite confronting. And I had a similar thing when they were doing the submission and we all know what, like, how tense it is doing submissions by a certain time. But the whole idea of it being like typed on a typewriter just started to make, make me feel a little bit sort of, I started to get into a bit of a cold sweat. I'm thinking, imagine, you know, you've got your 4 p.m. deadline in the circuit court or something and you're having to like type and, oh my God, I just made a mistake. I've got to, I've got to retype that page. They decided page. just because of one word, they were going to rewrite the whole thing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but the whole idea of doing a legal submission like to a court, like a written submission, without the benefit of a word processor, would just kind of make me think, oh. Favorite scenes? Oh, my favorite scene, the daughter, when they get catcalled on the street, and she turns around and gives them a serve and then tells Ruth, <laughs> mom, you don't have to let them speak to you like that. I just thought it was just it was cool. it was brilliant. Yeah. yeah, it was a great, just a great contrast even in, I guess, and foreshadowing where she says, like, yeah. we're already there. Like, I like that they added that whole relationship into it. I think that was nice. Like, yeah. you know, whether or not the daughter was that involved in every single decision and, and the process of putting together the brief and such and such, but I think it was great. I think she's pretty powerful. I think she's like a professor at Georgetown or something. She's pretty... Yeah, she yeah. is. Um, I, I liked it too, Courtney, as well, because that was the turning point. And, you know, whether it's true or not, that was the turning point in like Ruth's acceptance of the fact that her daughter's feminism was a slightly different feminism to her own. And we were yeah. talking about this last yeah. time. I don't know what it was about, but that sort of that generational thing that you sort of think about it in your terms. And I think that moment was the real killer moment of her. I loved that scene too. I thought it was cool. Yeah. But the thing I didn't like is Sam Waterstone, you know, also known as Jack McCoy from Law and Order. You know that guy? Oh, yes. Which yes. one was he? He's the... He comes into it. I think he's a professor early on in the movie. But then... The dean? The dean, yeah. Yes. And then later in the movie, he's actually oh, yes. working in the government and he's against her in that case. Now, you see, Law and Order, and now he was Jack yes. McCoy, the district attorney, and he was, like, my favourite Law and Order character for, like, so many years, and he's so distinctive. Yeah, but I thought it was great that they included him. It was great that it included him, but I just couldn't get past him being the, the evil really? face. It was like, it was terrible. It was like the episode of the first Star Trek that introduced the idea of like parallel universe. I don't know if you've seen that where 
Spock has like a goatee and he's nasty. It was just, he just didn't feel right. It was like, that's okay. Jack McCoy. But he was the same. He was a lawyer, but he was the nasty lawyer instead of the, the, the one with the big heart. So I didn't buy it necessarily because I, I think I've seen him also just in like really lovely roles. Yeah. But I was kind of happy for him to get a bit of a, an evil role. Not, a bit, so yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. So that was actually my favorite scene was the first one where he's, you know, he's asking, oh, why are you occupying a place in Harvard that could have gone to a man? Yeah. And she has that that reply about, oh, I'm at Harvard to learn more about my husband's work so that I can be a more patient and understanding wife. <laughs> yeah, that's that was amazing. I love, I love it. It's, it's a, you know, SNL dubbed it her Ginsburns. Right. It's a like, I'm glad they started the movie with that tone. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I gave it an eight. Eight and a half, maybe. Yeah. I agree again with your not. I give it an eight. Yeah. I also gave it an eight, but then I realized that I gave Legally Blonde an eight. And I, so therefore I give this one an 8.1. <laughs> <laughs> because it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG. It requires a higher and score. 8.1. Oh, you're getting serious yep. about this now. 8.1. I um, agree with Essie. This is what happens to me. I lost sleep because I wanted to give it an 8, but I gave um, A Few Good Men an 8. And then I yeah. had to compare the two constantly. And then I thought, just because I found the courtroom scenes in on the, in, on the basis of sex, just a little bit... A little bit more boring, so it's a yeah. seven point nine five. <laughs> I tell you what, they're a lot more realistic. Yeah, I, yeah. I should have read it because the, the two we've watched so far, I've gone on about mm. the realism. Just having the cranky old man just barking at you and disagreeing with everything you say—that's much more consistent with my experience of of being caught. <laughs> Definitely, but I take issue with it again because Ruth Bader Ginsburg has said in an interview that she never stumbled, and yeah. I didn't buy it when I watched the movie. I'm like, you are top of your class. You teach yeah. to like, like you lecture all the time. Like, you know, you're yeah. a boss lady. You would have nailed it, and she did. So. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's fair. But no, that's good. Okay, so what's next? Anyone got any ideas? Yes, yeah. the child, the Chicago Seven, because I read. Oh, yeah that a lot of what they've used in the movie is actually from the transcript of the trial and i really want to see that trial of the chicago seven great movie lock it in essie yeah thanks essie <laughs> amazing great Looking all right to that. thanks everybody for listening again um if you made it this far please feel free to reach out and connect with us we're all on linkedin um or by email or phone the office if you've got any inquiries um, otherwise, we'll be back soon with another topic um, in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everyone. Bye.